Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. The 500 The 500 J.A.M. walking us down through that 2012 edition So it ain't nothing to new Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend The king of peace for Angelo Talking the 500 until the end Talking the 500 until the end with my man J.M. On the 500, talking the 500 until the end. Clap for the next. I'm the cutest from a tribe called Quest. And when I quest for the buddy, I don't fess. For my Jimmy wants nothing but the best. The best? The best. Oh my god, man. This. Is it a song about a dick? Who knows? We talk about it. The song is Buddy. It's by De La Soul from the 1989 record Three Feet in Rising. It's also ba ba boop number 346 out of 500 on my podcast of 500 with Jam. I'm the Jam Slam. You are my fans. You're called the Fleas Army. Don't be swarm me. Thank you, everybody, that watched the live stream of the goddamn Comedy Jam on Mint. We're going to be doing it every month. Uh, it's going to be incredible, and we're going to keep growing it. Comedy Cellar was rocking. Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Go to joshadammyers.com for all tickets. I will be in Cancun November 3rd through the 6th. I'll be at Skankfest South in Houston November 7th. I will be in Edmonton. I will be in Vancouver. I will be in Texas again, I think in Plano, all in December. And then I got all my 2022 road dates coming up. JoshAdamMyers.com. Catch me at The Stand and uh, The Comedy Cellar every night of the week here in New York City, guys. Check my Instagram at JoshAdamMyers. Come, 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 come. And join our Patreon, patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. Who knows how long I'll keep doing this. The only way I'll keep doing it is if you give us money because it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and I am broke. Am I? Am I, though? We need your money, guys. $5. That's all we need. $5. Join the Patreon. Join the Patreon. De La Soul. That's our group today. Do you love them? I think you do. A lot of people have been asking about this one. A lot of people have been excited. It's really cool. It's really cool when you finally get to listen to an album that you've heard a lot about. And this is one of those records that I knew me, myself, and I. That was it. And last week, we had Blaine Kapach. This week, because of Blaine, we have our guest, 
Brian Pose, a guy that I've wanted to sit down and talk to for a long time. You know him from the Sarah Silverman program, from HBO's Mr. Show with Bob and David, from his incredible podcast, Nerd Poker with Blaine Kapatch. He is not only a thrash metal fan, but this dude knows hip hop. And this was a fun, fun, fun till my daddy kicks my T-Bows away. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500. Listen free on all platforms, anywhere you get your pods. If you listen on Apple, leave us a review. Come on. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media and go to my website, joshadammyers.com for all tickets, clips, and everything that you're going to need. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. It's on Facebook. I don't know where it is, but follow it. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but here we go. With number 346 out of 500 with three feet and rising by the day last saw. So how do we start? I feel like the the best way to start this is that, uh, Brian, since I have known you, the entity that is you from Mr. Show, from, from everything that you've done, this Sarah Silverman program and seeing you online, it has in my head, Ben, you are a metal god. <laughs> you are a dude that bleeds Ronnie James Dio to Deicide to Metallica to Black Sabbath to fucking De- I'll throw Deftones in there. Oh, and yeah. yeah, and and so when we had Blaine on last week, and Blaine, I go, what he goes, what's the next record? And I go, De La Soul. Uh, we really can't find anybody. Uh, and he goes, oh, uh, well, you should ask Brian because Brian loves hip hop just as much as he loves rock. And I swear to you, my mind was blown. So please tell me, tell me your journey with hip hop, because I had no idea. Yeah, well, with, with metal, it's just I started talking about it on stage and then I became that guy. But it, uh, I didn't keep hip hop out of the loop for any reason. I just uh, um you know, I liked music and yeah. in the eighties when that stuff started to happen, uh, I liked it just as much as like the new metal I was hearing. And, um, so it started with, you know, the obvious, uh, you know, grandmaster flash, all that stuff early. Yeah. And then run DMC was probably the first rap tape I bought. Um, and Do you remember which one? Yeah, uh, Raising Hell. No, before that, King of Rock. Okay, mine was uh, Raising Hell, one of the first albums my parents bought me. Yeah, and then um, so by the late '80s, I was working at a record store. I was work well. I was working at Tower, and I wound up being their rap buyer for a little while. And I had long hair. I was the metal kid. I was the skinny <laughs> kid wearing Metallica T-shirts, and I had hair, you know, down to my tits, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I was the rap buyer because it was suburbia and uh, you know, who else, who else was going to do it? And all the other kids, you know, there was uh, the trust of Fundian kid that, that he, he bought all the reggae, you know, records for the, for the tower I worked at. He was their buyer. You know, there was the classical kid and uh, <laughs> there was other people buying, ordering metal. And I always was like trying to help them because they were getting some of that wrong. 
but when that hip hop thing came up, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I, I know my shit and I knew my wait, shit and I still did. They did. Have, did they have everybody for like, I was like, dude, Todd just quit. So we need a new uh, rhythm and blues dude. And then we got Tony. We're training them on adult contemporary. Yeah, I don't know definitely how this is like work. that. Like every kid had their niche, had their thing. And, you know, and then the older <laughs> managers knew what we all were versed in. But then you also had to know, you know, like how I got hired was just basically knowing where Pink Floyd went, you know, and that kind of yeah, thing yeah, in yeah. the record store, you know, <laughs> knowing that it wasn't a dude. Yeah. It's under P. It's under P. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we so you're this you're this rocker dude. You got long hair down to your tits. I'm assuming you're wearing a flannel shirt and probably some combat boots. You dress somewhat like Judd right. Nelson from Breakfast Club. Right, right, right. And, or or and, I was also kind of into skate culture. So I would wear the Vision Streetwear shoes and you know but in the Stussy pants, yeah. it, was, it was, yeah. And, they, uh, and I, there were kids that there was a, there's a guy that I'm still friends with. Uh, I think he later became a cop and he still likes metal and rap and nice. still gives me shit for being the rap guy at our store and how weird it was. <laughs> Cause he kind of wanted that job too. I mean, that's the hippest job, dude, to be able to buy the fucking D nices and the EPMDs. And that's exactly what I was ordering. You know, like uh, NWA was huge at the end of the 80s there. And then, of course, we were getting, you know, uh, the pop stuff and we were selling, you know, MC Hammer out. Kid and play. Yeah, by pallets of that stuff. And, and, uh, you know, um, uh, Fresh Prince. What year is this? So... 88 oh wow around there and then okay. i also was so through my last day job was also a tower record so i i moved uh back to my hometown of sonoma and worked at their tower mm-hmm. but i wasn't the rap buyer but i was still like i was putting up uh posters for tribe called quest and you know nice. when that in 91 and then that was my last day job so you went from, cause this was that we're hearing you say this. I mean, how, how old are you? Cause even though it's 88, like how old are you around that time? You're like 14, 15, 16, 17, 21 and, and uh, 87. Okay. Yeah, so, so you're, you're in your twenties. All right. So that's a, yeah. Cause that was basically around the age that at least where, where in my life, where it was like, I felt like I could listen to all the music. Now, when I was in middle school and high school, it was like, I don't know if it was just a racially divided area or at least in my school, but it was like, you couldn't like rap and you couldn't like rock. And if you, and if you liked rock, then, then the rap kids were like, fuck you. And if you liked rap, then the, the rock kids were like, you're lame. And it was, so for me, cause I was such a metal guy, Brian, growing up, Iron Maiden posters all over my wall, Guns N' Roses changed my life, I've said on this podcast a million times. But uh, I remember when I, all the, the black kids in my, in my sixth grade class were the coolest, and I was like, God, I wanna hang out with them. And I was like, well, I gotta get rid of all my rock albums, and I gotta buy NWA, and I, which I did kinda like. I loved, I loved Public Enemy, and I remember I gave away all my shit in seventh grade, and I was like, I'm into hip hop now. And, and so I guess in your twenties, you know, you're, you're a little bit more comfortable with who you are so you can walk in both worlds. I mean, did people like call you out for being the rock looking guy that listens to rap? You know, I had gone through such a dorky period in high school and also a period where I didn't have a ton of friends. And the only friends I had were the metal kids and the punk kids Yeah, that uh, I kind of didn't care what other people thought way early. 
You know, like I also was into Marvel and DC when you were only supposed to be into one. <laughs> I liked Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, back then too, you know? Yeah. Like, I just liked what I liked and didn't give a shit. And, you know, and if you liked me, that was cool. But I had been so like shunned by the cool kids at that point that I was like, I'm just doing my own thing. And then at Good. Tower, Tower's just full of those kind of kids. That's all they yeah. hire are those kind of kids that are doing their own thing. You know, they want yeah. attitude. Like the fact that I was fired for attitude was like, you know, <laughs> I, I wore that as a badge that I was, right. I was too surly for Tower Records at one point, you know. <laughs> Were you so judgmental? Really, Were you yeah, judgmental? Part of it is not caring what other people thought of me, you know, like. Sure. But did you, but did you, were you judgmental on like, kind of like in high fidelity when the guys would walk up and ask for Ooh. Engelbert Humperdinck and you're like, you go, really? Yeah. That's but more so <laughs> towards pop. If you were into Michael Jackson or anything that was massive, then, you know, I just would yeah. roll my eyes. Yeah. If you were buying Garth Brooks, you know, when I was working <laughs> at the other record store in 1991. Yeah, just go again, you know. <laughs> Where's your Love truck? Yeah. Yeah, 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 just a shithead kid, you know. Yeah, I mean that's gotta be, but that's like the biggest fuck you to be. Like you said, you're you're the loner. You're hanging out with the metal kids, and now you have the power. You can yeah. be the judgmental one because you know Pink Floyd. You know all the music. You know the hip stuff. While everybody's listening to, you know, it's like. It's like, you know, it's like I know in the Walkman and everybody listens to, to Coldplay. You're like, all right, well, the Walkman rule. And but nobody really knows you're the cool guy that listens. To that right. Band. So so hip hop. So 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 what did you love about it compared to rock? I mean, did you find similarities or what was it that was really a attracted bit you? Of it, and then when things started to meld, I really liked that, too. You know, like when I was the first guy to be totally psyched when Anthrax started to go hip hop. And then when they made the public enemy co connection, I was like, the noise. this is my shit. Like this yeah. is something that I, I, I like both of these things. You know, it was yeah. already, I had been, been a fan from PE from the first record and the same yeah. with Anthrax. I had, I was a high school DJ at my, my senior year. I had kind of turned things around and uh, I'd become friends through summer school uh, with like the cool kids. And so I got to be DJ my senior year with this other kid. He was a head of the wrestling team and all that. So we would actually play Anthrax that first record, Fistful of Metal. Oh. Uh, so I had my cred there, you know. But yeah, but yeah. So what were the what were the artists that were sticking out to you? You mentioned Public Enemy. You know, you mentioned some of the people that you bought. But like, who were you really connecting with? And well, and I then liked how did they Go ahead. Yeah, so I liked the political stuff. Like, I liked it all. I liked Public Enemy. I liked lyricists. I liked guys like LL Cool J. I liked, uh, you know, his first couple of records. He was crazy. He was so good and yeah. so young. And and then uh, and then when Tribe came out, Tribe Called Quest, and w what we're going to talk about later, De La, when that stuff came out, I was, you know, I was kind of that kid. I was kind of a backpacker. I was smoking a lot of weed and, and, uh, that, that kind of music appealed to me too, because it had such a different feel from, and I liked the chronic too, but which was another That's, weedy type hip hop record. But yeah, I think I liked the more, uh, maybe cause it was more social and less, 
less dancey and that kind of thing. That's that's what drew me to bands like Tribe and Black Sheep and and uh, all that stuff at the end of the eighties and the early nineties. Yeah, everybody you just mentioned in that in that group was like, I mean, Tribe Called Quest is still, in my opinion, is has put out you know three of the best you know hip hop records I've ever heard. Uh, Midnight Marauders will will never leave my rotation. Yes. It gets at least a play once every six months. It's just music I can put on in any situation. Same they, for me. They and they then like when Wu Tang you know, came out, and I know yeah. we're getting later, but but I'm trying to th- think of everybody. Well, like so when I was working. At Tower at the end of the 80s, Too Short was huge too. And I like that stuff too, but I really, I really attract, I, I gotta say, Public Enemy was the biggest at the end of the 80s because they were so, those records were so perfect. Those, the first three records they did. Yeah. And then that, the fact that they hooked up with the Anthrax and then right behind would be, you know, uh, even that first tribe record. Oh. with Benita Applebaum and, and uh, yeah. you know, um, left my wallet and all that stuff. And they appealed to a white kid in a way that the other records did. You know, I, I wasn't like the wannabe, but the, it was like, I, these guys seemed cool with, would seem cool with like a Tower Records long hair listening to their records. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I didn't feel alienated by their music or, you know. Yeah, NWA I, I, was a little scary at first. It was like, I don't know if these dudes would like me. <laughs> I, I, I mean, what was the album? For? Was it Forty Miles and Running or or something? The or Hundred Miles and Running? The it was the one right after the breakthrough record. I remember listening right. to that and and like, even though I was like, God, I love this so much, I just was like, I don't know if I should be listening to this, you know. <laughs> right. But a tribe called Quest. And and even Wu Tang, you know, because Wu Tang was my big, my real big, you know, my break. That was where it was like I was such a grunge kid, and I was only like Stone Temple Pilots and, and ACD, not ACDC. Well, yeah, ACDC and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. And then Wu Tang comes out, and I go, "This was made for everybody." I feel like this is a group that everybody can enjoy. It's it's not like they're talking about their existence in in New York and what they've been through and their hardships, but there's something about the lyrics and the image and just everything about them that it's all inclusive. And and Tribe had that, and oh, yeah. and even the, the band we're talking about today, De La Soul, which I dude, you know, truth be told, the uh, you know, and I hate to say this, I'm embarrassed, but it's like, I knew me, myself and I, and I've known that for years. And the name De La Soul has come up and come up and come up. And I remember, actually, it's funny when I had Michael Rappaport on the podcast uh, and it was, it was on a day, which we'll get into in a minute of why this record wasn't available on streaming. And he was like talking to two of the members about it. And I was like, oh shit, like, you know, De La Soul. And it's like, you just, this is a band that you, you know, and seeing on the list, it's like how important this record was. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. 
Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. And, you know, so, 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 so it's 1989. How did this record make its way into your ears back then? Well, I was still at Tower. I was still at Tower in Sacramento. And I remember playing it with the other guys. I, li- I lived with three other Tower Records employees. Nice. And so, like, <laughs> the party would just, you know, the store would shut down at midnight and we'd go home and just keep smoking and, you know, creating yeah. music. And uh, that was one of those ones that it was me and my roommate Dana both found it that first week and went, this is crazy. Like, listen to this, listen to these samples. And that, that also, back then, when I think that was like when they were starting to, bands were starting to have trouble with sampling, but that record was so full of samples and yeah. so full of uh, samples that were recognizable instantly, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, the Big Lou Reed one and what was the, uh, you know, right in the hook. But um, so we would do listening parties, like we would go back to the house and then play it for the other guys. I remember all of us listening to it kind of out of my room because we all had pretty good stereos for dirtbag guys, you know? Like, yeah. That were just living off mac and cheese, but we were also all such big music fans that we had... A Macintosh, you right? Know, yeah, when my, like some really my friends were things. buying cars when they were in high school. I was, you know, accumulating a decent stereo, like a Technics yeah. turntable and all that. Mm-hmm you know jvc amp and uh so we all would play our shit for each other and i remember definitely doing that with that first record and then even being as a road comic a little bit later this record's you know sticking with me and me playing it on the road a lot yeah this is you know this is what's just so funny is because you're looking at the mo the really notable records that are coming out in 1989 the list i got in front of me you've got paul's boutique you got uh, yeah. Big Daddy Canes. It's a Big Daddy thing. You have two live crews, nasty as they want to be. And in this corner uh, by Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, then you do, you have like Gang Stars, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Sir Mix-a-Lot Seminar. Looking back on that now, like, 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 like how do you feel like so this Paul's album? Boutique in this record were the, the records for me. Those were the ones oh. that immediately. And then Paul's Boutique, I'm like, why is nobody else getting into this? Because this yeah. record people got into uh, three feet high, you know, and then their their record, their second record was kind of their, their Paul's Boutique. De La Soul is Dead. Because yeah. that was the record that I like even more than this one. Uh, yeah. That's in top 10 hip hop records of all time for me. De La Soul is Dead. But it would be up there with Paul's Boutique because Paul's Boutique blew my mind, you know, again, talking samples and then them coming from being that first record that was just kind of this party record, uh, you know, ill, um, licensed to ill. So then yeah. that second beastie record for me, and I'm working at the record store and we've got stacks of them and no one's buying them. And we had that, that cool ass vinyl. If you know the the vinyl like folds out to like, it's like an eightfold. Yeah. And showing that, that's that street, that area in Brooklyn. And I'm going, why is no one getting this? Like, no, you know. Are you guys just playing this like nonstop, like at the Tower Records, just almost like trying think, but to. No, but, but still everybody that listened to it, my friends and I were like, this is the coolest thing. And 
you know, it's not getting any radio play and it's not, you know, blowing up like that first record did. No, I, you know, it, what's, what's funny about that, you saying the connection between Paul's Boutique and this, it, it's really, it does kind of make sense because, I mean, Paul's Boutique for the BC Boys in particular, after coming off of, because that's right after License to Ill, right? Yeah. So License to Ill and then you have Paul's Boutique and Paul's Boutique is so different and so sample heavy and such a different vibe for Beastie Boys, but it still sounds like Beastie Boys. The the way they rap, they're still doing that trading off vocals. This record, and it's funny that you're the guest. It's almost I've never heard an album like this. I I mean this sincerely. Like even with the interludes and the minute long songs that are just them fucking around, making fun of each other. Um, Love you know that stuff too. Yeah, Prince Paul was kind of the master at doing those sketches, but I feel like other bands had done that before them, but that record was the one where it's kind of known for them maybe because it linked the whole record together, you know yeah. I mean? They use, they use sketches so much that it's, it's almost like a Monty Python episode where it completely. I was going to say it's Mr. Together. Show. Yeah, well, I was going to say it's Mr. Show of Bob and David. I would stream the consciousness, I, dude. Yeah, because you worked wanna, on it, of course. I, I said it, though. Check my own shit. No, but it's, <laughs> dude, it's like, it's almost perfect that you're the guest because it's like, it starts here and then it takes you on this journey. And then the other thing that really sticks out more than anything besides the stream of consciousness is that this might be one of the most positive hip hop records I've ever heard in my life. Like, you can't walk away from this feeling bad. I mean, I've, you know, just, you know, with, with life and the way the world is, it's like, I put this record on not expecting to come out of it. Like, Oh my God, I feel like I just read an Eckhart Tolle book. Like this is very positive. Right. And that is so different than everything that's coming out in, in 1989. And, and from well, what I think I've, that was I, part of the appeal too, you know, and then the fact that I was smoking and, you know, it was a great record to get high to, you know, to have on as the soundtrack while you're baked you know with yeah your other oh my god yeah this is dude i remember one time we were listening i was we took lsd and we were listening to wu-tang and i was just like you gotta turn this off i was like i am about to have a bad trip i'm going to the dark side turn that off and then my buddy's like let's put on evil dead part two i was like not a good idea not a good idea dude can we watch babe pig in the city or something because i'm about to freak out this record i I mean tripped on killer clowns from outer space Oh my God! How yeah. <laughs> were you ever the terrible, same? Terrible, yeah, dude. I mean, that movie would scare the shit out of me sober. Yeah. Um, so you look at the contrast. This is what I'm saying: is that you have the gritty, the the violent rap lyrics. You have Public Enemy, who who is is you know very political. We have to change the world, but in a very aggressive way. Even with with everything about them, even with having uh flavor flav to kind of break it up a little bit you but this uh, this yeah, yeah, yeah. no 100 percent, 100 percent. but this album is often labeled progressive is that is that what you think kind of when you listen to this yeah and i think that was the appeal i mean that like you were saying you hadn't heard anything like this and our minds were blown me and the other kid that were really into hip-hop in my you know my room between my roommates and then the other guys that were less into it were blown away too, you know, they were like, oh my God, we all knew this was a great record. Like on first listen, you know, getting it home, getting it out of the plastic and going, oh my God. And just yeah. walking through it, um, you know, the intro is cool. And then you get to magic number, 
and then it's more, you know, more sketches. And I don't know. Yeah, you hadn't heard anything like, and they're instantly likable. Yeah. You get their uh, personalities come off so well. And it's crazy that you're listening to vinyl. There is no visual, but you, you know, you're drawn into this world and it is positive and, you know. Which is funny and that you said visual. In the 80s, we kind of needed that if you no. were listening to, because metal was all like the thrash metal I was listening to at that time. Yeah. Megadeth, bands like that. They were all saying, dude, the world is ending soon. <laughs> like, shit is bad. <laughs> like, in thrash metal, if you were listening to it. And then you put this record on, and it's like, that's eh, not that bad. <laughs> you know? You know what's funny? I gotta say, as you talk about thrash metal, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in New York right now. I went to go see um, Slipknot oh, nice. uh, on Sunday of last week, and with their music being so intense and just like, you know, because like I feel like in every song there's one point that Corey goes, "Get the fuck up," and then it's, and it was great. It was great. But then you look around that audience and everybody's so positive and they're getting out that aggression. And so, yes, the, the lyrics are dark and yes, the music is intense, but it's like, it's, it's almost like the dude, it's the exact same vibe. If you went to, and, and Justin, I know you'll probably, cause I know you're a big fish fan. It's like, it's like thrash fish, you know? <laughs> and that's cool, man. That's, that's cool. But, but you mentioned something earlier about image and i think hip-hop is i mean for the most part has always been concerned about the artist's image and with de la I, I really feel like they're not so much about their image visually more than they're just focusing on and emphasizing themselves musically and i i don't know i, I mean is this kind of like a super power uh, within this group that kind of makes them stick out the reason that this record is number 346 out of 500 i mean obviously there's there's got to be something say it again about the visual thing i feel like because i feel like this i feel like the group it's whereas like hip-hop is you know like you look at ice t and I'm, I'm just saying this is in the 80s hip-hop it was all about the cool gangster image you know right. what i mean and public enemy is like you know aggressive and like, we are in your face and we are going to change the world with not only the music, but the power that is behind the music and the message that we're saying. But, but De La, it's like, some, you wouldn't even know that you're standing next to the members of De La Soul because they're just, it's focused on strictly the music. Is that almost like a super secret so, but Yeah, but, but if you got deeper into the record, I remember, I remember thinking of them as like the coolest college kids ever, you know? Like to me, they did stand out as having different personalities and that it was all about positivity and it was all about, uh, you know, things that weren't connecting with me, the Afro-American thing, because I didn't know that yeah. experience at all but they seemed like the cool, less in-your-face version of that. You know, they yeah. weren't screaming at you like public enemy. Well, they're almost but, doing it. You would learn something by hanging out with them, and you would, be, yes. you know, you would be cultured yeah. by the end of the hang, you know? Yes, you would. And they, but I think they're not, they're not, they're, they're screaming positivity, whereas public enemy is screaming revolution. You know what I mean? Right. And there's, that is fucking rare. Cause I mean, Tribe Called Quest, yeah, is probably one of those groups that definitely sticks out as like, you know, this like bring you in and like, let's smoke a joint. Let's, so let's when did that first record come out? I feel like it's all right around the right same time, right? 
Justin, will you look that up for us? Find out when the first uh, Tribe Called Quest record came out. Uh, I feel like that's, it's about like, I'd say like 88, 89, maybe. I mean, when did Low End Theory come out? Because I bought Midnight Marauders, I think I was 12, 13. So I'd say that came out in 93. I feel see, like the first one. You know what's funny? This record. So I, I tell this story a lot, but I used to be in an all Jewish hip hop group called The Shekels. And uh, we we made seven albums in about three months uh, in my in my my parents' house in in my bedroom in my parents' house, and we have one of our records which it which is Sergeant Buddha's Smoky Bong Club Band, and I'm telling you, Brian, this is the most low quality shit you've ever heard in your life. It's like we have a beat disc of thirty of thirty beats. We just put it on the CD and let it loop, and it would always be off beat after the thirty second beat would would go, and it would it would it would just get off beat. And we had a Casio keyboard, and we would kind of like try to you know like make like a little like you know we we put the melody on top of the beat, and then we'd rhyme using uh, like the microphone held right up to the Casio keyboard speaker and with the beat disc playing and we just hit record on the boom box and that's how we get it. And on our record, Sergeant Buddha, I feel like this was the exact sound we were trying to go for the way this record with the interludes. So as I was listening to this, I was like, dude, this is like, if we just would have had a good producer, <laughs> we would have done this record, man. This I is what we were trying. We were trying Ryan, to Prince do. Paul get behind this. Track. God, Prince <laughs> Paul. I don't know what you call Mr. Prince, Mr. Paul. <laughs> I think this is a Prince Paul record. I, I think he really shines these beats. I mean, on this record are the star of it is I'm not just talking about, you know, the, you know, the, the songs that are three, four minutes long. Like I said, those minute long songs really stick out. I mean, even though there's not, a, they're just saying sometimes just making, like I said, making fun of each other. It just right. feels like this is like they gave Prince Paul just full range to say to play whatever you want, sample whatever the fuck you want, and we will follow you. Do you have any thoughts on that or anything that sticks out? No, I agree. And I mean, it made me a fan. It made me not only a fan of Dela, of Dela but it made me a fan of Prince Paul. And then it's like, what else is he going to do? And, you know, following his production into other bands and then. I like bands that are influenced by him. Like he didn't produce that first far side record, but it feels like a Prince Paul record because it's yeah. so full of, you know, it it's connected the way this record is, you know? No, totally. Um, did you find out Justin when that, uh, when that I came out? It up. It's 90. It came out in April of 90. So this is before that people's instinctive. Yeah. I was reading so much about it too, that I knew that uh it was native tongues and i already knew that there there was like these other bands involved i don't remember does anybody else show up on that record i don't think they have any guess. on this record yeah on on you have Free you have q-tip you have oh, q-tip Q is yeah good. you have the jungle brothers oh yeah so that makes total sense yeah it's this is because this really is uh, just an extension of everything that tribe called quest was going to go on and, and do because i mean the second you hear like you said the non-aggressive lyrics the lyricism the love 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 i mean christ uh, you know tribe called quest had a had a record called the love i think it's the the love supreme right where the love yeah the love, love yeah it's like everything they've done is about love and it's like de la soul it just feels like this is just a part of all of that and, but and there was also uh, this attitude too. I don't remember what song it comes off in, but they they they're funny, hitting on women on in the sketches and the songs, and then 
you also get the fact that, yeah, we look like college guys. We look like three smart dudes, but we'll also kick your ass. Like that comes off in this record of like, we might have a gun. We'll definitely defend each other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We're going to go down fighting. We're not just soft nerds. That was like, you get (laughs) that by the record, you know, like in the video, they look kind of nerdy. But if you listen to this whole album, you know, they're kind of badass. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Like each guy can rhyme and then they also aren't soft. Well, you know, that's like they're about love, but they're not soft. They're not pussies. No, you know, yeah. And then that also leads us into, I think, why this album is not on any of the streaming services because they are badass. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this, Brian, but I have it all pulled up. So De La Soul had been attempting to bring projects like Three Feet and Rising and De La Soul is Dead to streaming. But in, in 2019, the band's former label, Tommy Boy, made moves to bring the album to streaming with a deal that would have seen the group receive only 10% of the streaming royalties. De La Soul asked fans not to listen to their albums on streaming platforms and Tommy Boy retreated on its plan to upload the catalog. Then Tommy Boy Records was acquired by Reservoir Music in the $100 million deal. Uh, they said, we're thrilled, uh, said the group's uh, Dave uh, Tragoy, the Dove. We've come to a deal between ourselves and Reservoir to release our music in 2021. Our catalog will be released this year. We are working diligently with the good folks at Reservoir. We sat down with them and got it done pretty quickly, actually. Um, it, it's It's just, like, insane that they would, I mean, be offered this deal that would only give them 10% of the streaming royalties and for them to then tell their fans, like, listen, do not listen to this record. Like, we could get, like, it's, 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 we're getting ripped off. This is something that, you know, we, we, we put our, our, our sweat and our blood into and, and to get 10% of something that, that the streaming services and, and Tommy Boy is going to make so much money off of i mean it's right. ridiculous what do you, do you have any thoughts on that or like yeah i think they were sick of it because so many bands i know i don't know their whole story but i know tribe had sold so many records and made hardly anything because of the initial deals they made so i don't know what their initial deal was but i could get totally being at this point in your life and your career being so sick of the music business that any other way of getting it to your fans is the right way to do it. You know? Yeah. Um, It says here the album and the reason why it's took decades. And I think you mentioned this, they were uh, mired in legal issues with Tommy boy stemming both from the extensive use of uncleared samples, a field that was the unexplored wild West at the time. And the group's contract with the company, which a member signed when they were teenagers. I mean, yeah, dude, you're a teenager and somebody offers you, hey, man, we'll give you $200,000 to have this record deal. Like, you're going to take it. Little yeah, do you know they that they're just nothing. fucking you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the story of uh, TLC, man. TLC, when when uh, Crazy Sexy Cool came out, they filed for bankruptcy. And that album was one of the biggest records of that year. You right. know? Like, well, could, I, I know this is a weird question, but you, you've been in the business for a minute. Uh, is, have you, what's the biggest you've gotten screwed? Uh, if you don't mind us if telling us, I don't know if you've even got one. Uh, well, I've had things go away. I mean, at a certain point, 
what your lawyers and your agents will tell you all the time if you're as you're developing and trying you know trying to get your price up is the only way you get your price up is if you're willing to walk away and a lot of times i'm just not willing to walk away like things yeah. will come up and people will know it you know like the the person offering me the job knows i really want the job so I mean, that's where it, you kind of just take it in the chin where, you know, you, your price net doesn't go up because of that. Yeah. Um, I haven't had, I've had, <laughs> I got a pretty, <laughs> without going too far into it, I have a lawyer that I've actually had other people go, dude, your lawyer's a dick. <laughs> like <laughs> hearing it but from you other people's that. legal I know and I do like it like yeah to a certain extent but uh I've heard from other people's legal departments going man your guy you know Marvel which is notorious for being uh legal uh, their their people did not like my lawyer when I was yeah. working on Deadpool and yeah. kind of the reason why I'm no longer at Deadpool <laughs> but <laughs> We said, we want Brian. We can't take, we can't take Frank Cohenberg. This motherfucker is yeah. insane. Well, that's what if you I want, went back though. to Marvel, they'd, they would probably ask, hey, are you still with so-and-so? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, but did that, I mean, but obviously he's working in your best right, right, right. interest. I mean, well, that's and- what he... He wears that on his sleeve. He's one of those guys going, I'm a pit bull because you need a pit bull. And, you know. Dude, this business, you know, it's so shitty. You know, it's like, well, we just want to perform. We just want to work. Just like Daylight just wants to make music and get it out to all these people. And then it's all the people behind the scenes that fuck it up. For oh, yeah. all of us, well, whether they, it's a comic book company, a record store, or I mean, a record company, a movie, animation, they're all, I mean, well, they're all looking out for themselves, really. It's, yeah. it's all that, you know, the company doesn't give away deals and isn't going to, you know, survive if they give everybody the best deal that they could possibly get. They, they survive because they give you the worst deal that they could possibly get yeah. and, and still have you do business with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports. And me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Um, I always feel like every executive is just, you know, sitting in a room and they'll just throw out any idea. So they feel like they earned their paycheck, even if their idea is the shittiest idea uh, ever. I mean, goddamn comedy jam on comedy central. It, if they just did it the way that I created it, it would have fucking ruled. And listen, I mean, I did I've a Steel a Panther show at comedy central, you know, that, yeah, with, with the jackass guys, and I mean, I have a million things that if I was able to run it completely, it might it would have been a different story. But sure, 
What's yeah. the funniest, what's the funniest note uh, network execs ever given you or like on a project that you were just like, oh my God. Well, I had one on my walls, uh, on my wall forever because it was one, uh, one of my first jobs was at MTV and it was a, um, it was like a game show, like uh, remote control. It was called Trashed. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really my first job in LA. And uh, my man, or uh, my um, producer of the show, brought me in and asked if if there was a way to make AIDS funny. <laughs> she wanted to, I, she was coming from the right place. Like she wanted to make uh, AIDS, just acknowledge it, talk about it and really talk and, you know, talk about how you get it and that kind of thing, knowledge about it, but then also make it funny. Like she yeah. wanted it to be educational. Like that was her whole thing. Like, but I'm like, we're on a game show where we trash people's surfboards because they didn't get, you know, the Kid Rock question or whatever, whatever <laughs> was, that was pre-Kid Rock, but whatever the dumb question was, you know, like yeah. what what De La Soul song is this? Because we did have them in the, you know, on the show Trashed. And I'm just like, how do we make AIDS funny? And I wound up doing a bit about her on stage and then her seeing the producer was in, in the audience at like the Melrose uh, Improv while I'm talking <laughs> shit about how do you make AIDS funny? Like you don't. You just don't. Well, I think in song, in song, <laughs> well, AIDS yeah, later, funny in song. Yeah, later on, <laughs> South Park proved me wrong. But yeah, but it's like it's like well, it's all I like give in your mind. It's just yeah, a song. Yeah, yeah. It's like well, you right, have unprotected sex with. Ninety-two I mean, or ninety-three. I was like, I I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. <laughs> not 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 that early. Two thousand twenty-one. We found many many ways, but and then Mr. Um, Show. We had we we put our own. We had our own card on the board saying at one point we had done too many gay jokes and too many Hitler jokes, so it said no gay and no Hitler uh, on our board. <laughs> That was our own, like, we got to move on. We've, got, we've hit those pots. You hit your quota. I got to ask it. I got to ask it while we're talking about it right now. Cause I mean, me and my producer, uh, Jeremiah Tittle, I mean, obviously it's, it's still to this day, I think the greatest sketch show that ever existed. It influenced uh, how I write comedy, what I, what I love about comedy, everything about it. And being that you were such a huge part on it and you worked on every season, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you have a, do you have like a, uh, it can't get better than this moment on Mr. Show, like a moment that just sticks out to you. It was like, man, this it's, this was, yeah, there were a lot, but um, yeah, some of my best memories, Bob Odenkirk is my favorite person that I've ever worked with in the business. And David, yeah. David's right behind him, but Bob, because Bob really um, helped me mature a lot. And then uh, because I was a jackass when I got hired there and I was just not, a good dude like i was really <laughs> cocky and i was you know cranking out sketches and i got a lot of sketches on the show but he also taught me to be a little more humble and you know and but uh and then there was some and it also made me a better sketch writer but one of my favorite ones was we had ordered food and uh we'd been writing all morning in the same writing room all the whole group of us yeah. The whole staff and it's i think it's it's season three and um he uh, and i are hanging out bob's on the couch i'm on another couch and we were riffing he was riffing like he was the substitute teacher and i was riffing like i was every asshole kid ever you know just yeah. smarting off to him and just being you know just a dick and being sarcastic 
and we came up with that sketch of uh, going up your mother's ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, we weren't going to write a sketch. We were just sitting there waiting for lunch, and everybody else had left the room and was, like, eating in their rooms. And he and I got our food, but we're still, like, fucking around, and we're just riffing. Yeah. And then everybody came back from lunch, and we're like, hey, we got a sketch. And they're like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you can't just sit here for 45 minutes and not create? Like, and that's one of my favorite memories of, of the show was just that he and I were giggling and, we, and like, we're just being jackasses with each other. And then suddenly we're like, Oh, this is an idea. This is like a funny thing. And yeah. then we wrote the sketch immediately when everybody came back, Bob's like, okay, here it is. And, you know, take notes. We started banging it out and had a draft. I mean, that's incredible. That's such a, that's so funny. It just how, I mean, that's, that's what happens. That's, that's 90% of comedy is, you know, even with stand up. it's like, you'll be talking to your buddies, you'll say something, they'll all laugh and they'll go, that's a bit. And then you're yeah, like, you oh shit, sure. I've got a, I got a 15 minute joke that I can expand on now out of just, just you bullshit with my friends. We wrote a lot like that in the early days of me and other standups where we would go to coffee houses in San Francisco and just sit there for hours. You know, a lot of it would be you kind of, you know, quiet in your little notebook but then you'd go hey what about this and then yeah. your buddies you know would tag it and make it funnier and you know uh it's bad and then also like parts of comedy also but that's also you're working with i mean you know i'm because i'm friends with a few of you guys uh tom through the podcast i i hit it off with him tom kenny uh karen kilgariff I, i've known for years and is is a near and dear friend mary Lynn and I mean you have a collection of some of the funniest people working and then all the guys behind the scenes like Dino and I mean it's just like you have yeah. you have like they, did you guys know while you were doing it like how I mean important this sketch group was or or was it just like we're just fucking we're like we got another season holy shit they're letting us do this I did um, because I feel like I came into it as a fan. Uh, you know, I'm such a fanboy still. I talk about, you know, all the other, all the things I'm nerdy about, but I was super nerdy about comedy too. And so I loved the Ben Stiller show and I saw the potential of those guys. So when I first moved to LA and we were doing ske live sketches and they would ask me to do shit, Bob and David. And I was yeah. like, these guys are the two smartest guys out here. And, and immediately i was like anything they want me to do i'm doing you know and yeah. so the first season they wrote themselves it was just all four episodes and they wrote everything themselves and then they had us all act in it you know um but i remember going to a table read and hearing all four all, all four episodes up on their feet and they're like any notes and we're like no like all of us we, you know, we, we're the people that wound up being hired as the writing staff the second season it was me and bill odenkirk and you know, dino and yeah but yeah just going this thing's amazing you know i knew that the first just hearing it and then as we started to shoot it and we're seeing these sketches come back i'm like it's so silly it's so smart <laughs> it's smart and stupid like almost in the same second you yeah, know, like yeah, like Python was like, and SCTV. Some of my favorite shit on SCTV is when when you would be like, "How dumb is this?" And then I'm I'm also crying. And then how smart is the fact that they got there for you know whatever it is. 
I think it was just, I think it was perfect timing. I really do. Like you said, you're coming off the Ben Stiller show and like the, the, the comedy from that, which is, which is in a sense, like it's, I can see some influence because Bob worked on that too, but there's, there's something about maybe HBO being like, you guys just go at it. They know how hip the alt scene is in San Francisco and in LA and places that it's really starting to build. And you have like all these, these great people together, which to bring it back to this record, you know, I, I kind of think that it's it's like you get these guys and Prince Paul and they're like, let's do something. Let's do something different. Because what I've got the little well, breakdown the about thing, not to interrupt you, but you, you said it yourself earlier. We put our own notes on a Mr. Show. We didn't get any notes from HBO. They totally left us alone all four seasons. And that's part of why we didn't do seven or seven or eight seasons, because they weren't involved so by season four they were like fuck it and they let us go you know yeah so yeah yeah yeah. i think if they had had their hands in the pie a little more maybe they would have been more you know because new york new york wasn't even aware of us because we were out here in la so we were talking with the la executives so like the new york hbo executives weren't aware of us and that's why you would see like real sex would be on friday night in our spot yeah, kind of near the end, and like people <laughs> like our final season, you had to really look for our show. Oh yeah, because they were moving us around because they just didn't give a fuck and didn't know what they had. And then we got two Emmy nominations, you know, the last two years. But I think they didn't really even care about that because we already had Sopranos that our final year. Sopranos yeah. was their new show, and you know, they did give you like in their defense though, they did give you, which was the reason we became so obsessed with the show. They did do uh, two Fridays in a row. They, they played every episode starting at midnight. And we, I set up my VHS and I recorded that and that tape got passed around right, and passed right, right. around like, well, and like thank a joint God for stoners and college kids that passed our show around. I mean, thank I mean, it's tenacious really true. D. Like we it, knew it, that then, you know, cause yeah. That was the only way we made it to like we did a Comic Con one of the first times I've done anything on the other side. And that was we got invited to must have been 98 Comic Con. And and uh, it was all because of tape trading more than HBO. Oh, for sure, dude. That's because yeah. that's what you do, man. It's like you literally we would sit around and we'd be stoned. I'd be like, well, we want to watch something. I'd be like, oh, have you ever seen Mr. Show? And they'd be like, no. And dude, it was the fucking sketch that you guys had where those the guy comes in. He's like, I got a video oh, of yeah, this yeah, and yeah. blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, like, we made fun of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, you guys basically parodied yourself, and that's what was so brilliant about it. Also, and I think, and to bring it back to De La Soul, I think that is what is cool about this group because they're not the biggest group, you know, out there when when they come out. But there is something, you know, like you said, working at the record store, man. It's like you feel cool knowing about a band that no one else knows about, and and Mr. Show falls into that. That was a show that that the people that knew it. The people that were at when you guys went on tour to the you, I remember you guys played oh, yeah. fuck in DC. You did, I want to say, and I, I was gonna keep saying for some reason I want to say the Library of Congress, but you did some place in DC that's pretty epic, uh, Constitution yeah. Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did Constitution Hall, and it's like the people that were in there were all just like, fuck yeah, dude. dude Jeepers Ian Creepers. from Fugazi was at that show. No shit. Yes. He came backstage and me and David Cross were losing our shit because we both, I like Minor Thread and later got into Fugazi, but uh, I think Cross was more of a Fugazi guy and and, uh, we both were like, 
you know, and he's like, uh, boy now over us. Right? like he's yeah. so happy to be backstage <laughs> meeting David and, you know, the tall jackass from Mr. Show me. <laughs> you know. So he was like, it was super crazy moment of us kind of fanboying off each other. I mean, it's, 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 it's brilliant, man. I, I, I listen, I, st- I mean, there were nights, even when I was living in LA during the pandemic, I was just like, I just need to fucking laugh. And I put it on and, and, you know, I'd fall asleep to it. And it's just, it, it holds up. It's crazy how, how well it still holds up. And, and I'll, you know, I'm, it's one of the reasons I'm in this position now, because it's like, you see people be able to have that much control over their product and how funny it can be by thinking outside of the box that you're like, oh, this, there's a reason why they're still talking about this show. And then there's so many seasons of Saturday Night Live that you're like, oh, I forgot that, that right. they, were even, they were even doing it then. Yeah. I mean, I mean, because like we, we said the comparison, this record, Mr. Show. Now, a lot of people call this record the Sgt. Pepper of hip hop, which I would call Mr. Show the Sgt. Pepper of sketch. Is that good? You like yeah. That? Okay. I'll do you think it. that do you think that that comparison makes sense for this record? Yes. Totally. Uh yeah, the the and also the fact that Sgt. Pepper wasn't the Beatles' first record. So they Beatles built to Sgt. Pepper, but yeah. Dela Soul was like, look at this. Like right they the put gate. out a genius record as their first record. Yeah. You know, and it might be their best rep. I, but I love like I like I was Dale saying. I love Dale Soul is dead for the reason that it's a little darker. And then by the nineties, I was a little bit darker than I was in the eighties. You know, things yeah. were just happening, <laughs> life, and and I was maturing, and and that record was more mature, and and I dug it. I it got me through some shit like in the early nineties. I lost both of my grandfathers in the same month. Wow. I was actually hunting for one of my grandfathers because he had walked away with Parkinson's and uh, we just never saw him again until they found him. Oh, wow. But I was driving along with Dela. Remember, I remember that record in, the, in uh, Sacramento while I'm hunting for my grandfather in this record being dark, but also fun. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, I don't know how they could do that, but they did that. No, I, I, dude, it's that it's, record. It's, you know that. Um, I think Millie pulled a. I think it's called Millie pulled a pistol on Santa. Do you know that song? I don't. It's on De La Soul is Dead, and it's one of the best. I also loved storytelling music, and they were really great at that. You know, whether it's Cher or Dolly Parton or any kind of, you know, where, where there's a story told in the song, I always yeah. loved that. And uh, and you know, metal does it a little less you know, will warrant Uncle Tom's Cabin. Let me tell you a story. But, you know, <laughs> there's not a lot of story songs in metal, but there are some in hip hop and Millie pulled a pistol on Santa is this one that's insane. If you don't know the song, you gotta, you gotta check it out after no, that. I will. Well, there's a lot. Of, I think on this record, there, there is a bunch of stories. Yeah, I mean, usually, we, yeah, we, we, all really have, we all have a shitload of uh, time left. Let's, let's talk about some of the tracks. Well, first of all, let me give you a look at some stats about this. On the Billboard chart, Three Feet and Rising hit number one on R&B Hip Hop, number 24 in the top 200. This is by far uh, De La's biggest commercial success. Uh, 
Uh, but they did produce a bunch of quality records after this, one of them being uh, De La Soul is Dead, which you fucking love. And then, I thought this was cool. In 2011, Three Feet and Rising was among 25 albums chosen as additions to the Library of Congress's 2010 National Recording Registry for being cultural and aesthetical and also for its historical impact. Uh, coincidentally, uh, Steely Dan's album Aja, from which Three Feet and Rising samples, was also named to the registry that year. I think that's pretty fucking cool. Um, I mean, let's let's like I don't know if there's any tracks you want to talk about. The the first one that really got me was uh, Magic Number. I mean, this is probably one of the most positive hip hop songs I'd ever heard. And it just it just feels good. And it's like something you could sing to kids, which I know, you know, they came up with Magic Number uh, through. Hold on, let me see if I might have gotten a little off track. Is it a cover it's, of that? It's from let me that see. show, right? From uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. School, yeah, School Rock. Rock. But yeah, but that's like their 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 opening track is fucking that. I mean, that's fucking adorable. Can you keep a secret? I love that little sketch where they're they're whispering like embarrassing secrets about each other, which I thought was hilarious. You know, it could have gotten a little bit funnier. I wish they would have been like, you know, because they were like, Prince Paul, you know, likes money. I was hoping they'd be like, Prince Paul has eczema. Um, they didn't, but, you know. Um, anything that sticks out to you? Like, I mean, there's, I, I could go just the hits, but. Oh, as a good, I'm, I'm looking myself. Yeah, even like Take It Off is a little sketch that I, is burned into my memory. I hear it, yeah. you know, just take it off. You know, uh, ghetto thing. You know, I didn't live in a ghetto, but, but no. I lived in the suburbs of Sacramento. But I love that song. And you talked about, Brian, you talked about storytelling. And then this is like, dude, Tread Water is basically a children's story, very surreal children's story set to a hip hop beat featuring a crocodile sporting a daisy in his hat, a monkey that can't peel his banana because of a bandaged hand, and a fish swimming in the bathroom sink. And I found this and I love it. Despite the nursery rhyme lyrics, what is it? Postinus? Mm -hmm. Postinus told Melody Maker that the track has a serious side to it. It's saying that when you're, this is, listen how fucking positive this is. It's saying that when you're feeling down, when you feel like you're drowning, just keep going. Mm -hmm. That's how it was for us. We had to keep striving towards a goal, which always seemed to be shifting around. It's a push song. And even if it sounds like we're talking to little kids, they're really talking to everybody and finding Nemo stole from them. Yes. <laughs> Just keep swimming. Who's that? Brad bird. Who directed that? Brad. Yeah. It's probably Brad. He's got his hand in everything. Uh, you know, potholes in my lawn. One of the hardest beats on the record. I loved that. Uh, what else did I really like? Let me see. Oh, fucking say no go where they're sampling. I can't go for that by Hall and Oates. Uh, I got, I sounded like I'm from Philadelphia right there. Hall and Oates. <laughs> I, I can't yeah. go for that. I can't go for that by horn eights. Um, yeah, dude. And then Buddy I mean, was funny because isn't it about Buddy? Isn't Buddy about your penis? Where is it? Which one are we looking at? Buddies? Let me find. Do I have that fact? Buddy. It says, oh, so so this is, by the way that you mentioned this, this is probably one of the greatest songs on the record. Might be one of the best ones I heard on this uh, that was new. Uh, Every verse is legendary. Uh, Q-tip rules. And dude, I want to play this real quick. Do you have, uh, Justin, do you have the clip for Buddy? 
uh, play uh, one minute in because I thought how creative this shit is. Slap for the next. I'm the cute from a tribe called Quest. And when I quest for the buddy, I don't fess. For my Jimmy wants nothing but the best. The best? The best. Let's stick out Jimmy and see what we can catch. Stick him up, stick him up, Jimmy. Next. Won't be needed unless Jenny want to get right to the flesh. What I loved about that are those little like drops throughout the whole song and how creative that was. It's it really is different than everything that I'm that I know that's uh, those artists that we mentioned earlier that are that are that are big into hip hop. I mean, this is this is a totally new thing. Well, you know what? I think it sets it apart. I think the intention, it feels like a headphones record. And a lot of yeah. hip hop wasn't at that time. A lot of hip hop was to be played in your car as you drove around the mall, or at least if you're a white kid in the suburbs, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. in your Volkswagen, you know, with your giant speakers, too short, all that stuff. It's more like parties and, and, and this wasn't, this didn't feel like a party record. This felt like a headphone record right away. Yeah. This is, this is Pink Floyd. This is like listening to the record I did with, um, with fucking with Blaine. This is uh, Piper at the gates of dawn. It's different. It's, it's psychedelic. It's psychedelic. This is psychedelic hip hop. This is, well, they say that straight up. Yeah. I mean, that's sure. But I mean, you know, but this is what's funny is that you have these headphone songs and then you have a banger like me, myself and I, which is so iconic. Everything about this song is good. It's catchy. It's positive. It's a million percent original Uh, Prince Paul just shines on this even when he's doing those like dj fades with the uh, 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 you know yeah, it's so great ev- everything about this song uh well, that's definitely the standout track for me that that yeah. song yeah i mean and it's I got humor up there too and yeah, but this has got humor. It's got wrong. social commentary. Uh, and it's, it's about the group's frustration concerning their forced upon hippie label. It's addressed in a typically dry humor, which made basically the De La Soul trademark. I mean, and it ranked number 46 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of Hip Hop. And the song is included in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. That's pretty fucking cool, man. Pretty day, print day. And every song um, is different too. Like Potholes in My Lawn is so, it sticks out, but it's such a cool track. And Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. you have that available? Yeah, play a little bit of that, because I said that's the hardest beat on the record. Play the opening. Yo, something's wrong here. No, not again. Yeah. That it's sample. Yeah, that. In my lawn. 
all those guys were pulling all these jazz samples that you'd never heard of in your life, but it made it, yeah, so unique and cool. So we have song sampled. You have Magic Mountain by Eric Burden in War, as well as the signature yodeling and jaw harp on Parliament's Little Old Country Boy of 1970s Osmium. The song is notable for being the first hip-hop song to be played on Mars by NASA's Opportunity Rover in 2004. Really? That's crazy. That's a real fact. (laughs) All right, here's some randos about this. Uh, Let me get to it. Where is it? There they are. So I don't know if you know this, but in 2020, uh, Rolling Stone created a new 500 Greatest Albums list. A lot of the records that we've been doing have been left off. This album leaped 243 spots to number 103, which is fucking rare. So that just shows you how important uh, this record was. In 2001, Macy Gray felt it was the best record of the past 15 years in a Q magazine review. They're like the Beatles of hip hop. In 2001, electronic artist, I don't want to do that one. He's basically saying this is the dark side of the moon. We've gone over that. Let's let's do this. This is a good one. The album's artwork was designed by Tommy Mott. Uh, Toby Mott, not Tommy. He describes the process of making the vibrant cover that was ahead of its time. We've come up with the Daisy Age visual concept. De La Soul visit our loft where we lay them down on the floor facing up, their heads making a triangle. We photograph them whilst hanging precariously off a stepladder. One idea being that the cover would not have a right way up. CDs have yet to be the dominant musical format, so the vinyl album sleeve is our most effective way of making a statement. We layer the brightly colored hand-drawn flower designs made with paint pens on acetate over the black and white photograph portrait print, which is Rostrum camera copied. This is well before the time of Apple, Max, and scanning. The intent of the design of De La Soul's Three Feet and Rising and LP cover is to be new and bright with the overlaying of the fluorescent flowers and text reflecting a synthetic pop cartoon look, which I think they did. This is a move away from the prevailing macho hip-hop visual codes, which dominate to this day. So the, the album cover is very distinct from most hip-hop albums from that era, from any era to be... Do you think it can safely be considered iconic? Absolutely. It totally stood out because it didn't look like any other thing that I was selling at that time. You know, every other, you know, most of it, people were trying to look aggressive or cool. Yeah. And this was a totally different thing. This was like a throwback to hippies. Yeah. You know, it felt like it could have come out in 68, you know, summer of love and, and, uh, it just, it totally stood out and still does. I mean, did you have like a big, like a big fucking, like, not what do you call that? Like, you know, where all the records are laid out. So when people walk in, they're like, all right, here's a new release. We had a display for this record. Yeah. Yeah. Were people drawn to it? Were like, what, did, you, did you have a lot of people bring it up to you and go, who's De La Soul? No, we sold. Yeah. No, I remember that record selling well for sure. Yeah. It was the, was it, the next one you, that tanked, but, but yeah. <laughs> how much did you charge for it? Probably eighteen ninety nine with that knows? big fucking... Those long boxes. And, oh, my God. You couldn't steal it. It was like, well, you yes, know, you, you need could. A, could you? God damn. Why didn't anybody tell me that? <laughs> like, too easily. Really? Wait, how do you do it? If you went into a Tower Records at that time with a... You know, before they put him in those... 
Well, then they they took him out of the long boxes and put him in the the, the plastic the cases, the plastic yeah. cases. Those are impenetrable. But there yeah. was a there was a space where if you had a you know a razor blade or a you know a, a box knife and went in there, you, I, could, you could fuck up a tower and walk out with you know. All right, before we get into full of CDs, before we get into final questions, I also ran security. I didn't run yes, security. Yeah, of course you did. Of course I you chased, did. You're doing chasing <laughs> kids into an apartment complex with, uh, you know, some MC Hammer. How much? What's the most you ever saw somebody steal? They would always. It was never much. We never saw like the backpack kids. We it was always one or two tapes or or you know a CD. But no one, they, no one who's stealing vinyl, that would be ballsy. But I mean, uh, that would be ballsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was uh, what was the most stolen uh, inventory? I, I feel like it was from my department. Definitely, yeah. it was hip hop. <laughs> it was it was the young kids either stealing Fresh Prince or MC Hammer. Oh God, the, you know, or Rob Bass, or you know. I used to work at a Hollywood video. I worked at a Hollywood video and I stole everything. If if VHS was still a a proper format, I would have the greatest movie collection of all time. But, but you know, people come over. I'd be like, you want to, you want a copy of Aaron Brockovich? I have seven of them. There's a tower (laughs) documentary where they talk about the tower employees being kind of a a big part of why tower went went away because we, we, (laughs) we pillaged. Of course, <laughs> of course. Yeah. I, that's that's you don't get health insurance. So no, I lived with managers and they pillaged. Like same, same at the Hollywood video, dude. Yeah, and they were the ones telling, dude, don't take that many. Take one or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're loading up. You know, <laughs> it's like, do you want this? Uh, do you want this uh, Cat Stevens box set, or can I take it? You're yeah. like, all right, that's you tonight. You're like, be subtle about it, Posey. And then meanwhile, they're like. Just pouring <laughs> shit into their backpack. All right, random questions. These are these are. I ask all the guests these questions, Brian. Uh, I don't want to keep you much longer, man. This was so much fun, dude. Yeah, it's been I, I mean, talking that. to you, dude. Um, all right, favorite song on the record. Uh, let's go, buddy. Buddy, okay, okay. Least favorite song on the record. I really like everything. Um, I'm trying to think if there's something that was irritating to me. Something you skip over, maybe? There was a couple. You know what? I, I'll be honest with you. I think this record is, and I'm not saying it's 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 bad up top. It really starts picking up towards the end. Those when I would have been listening to it over the last couple of weeks, I, I noticed that I would be like, fine, and I'd start the record, I'd be like, eh. And then it would start really getting going like halfway through, and that's where I feel like the bomb tracks are. I might I might have skipped magic number once or twice just because it's so it's so juvenile and, and not as you know cool as the rest of the record. Uh I ask everybody this. What song on this record would you fuck to? <laughs> uh it's so weird. You know my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't what know. What sets the mood? I don't think I have played this record with her ever. Uh, take it off. <laughs> take it off. All right. Yeah. I mean, it does give instructions. <laughs> right. Uh, and last question: Does this record deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list? Absolutely. And why? Yeah. It really yeah. does. Yeah. 
I don't, I, you know, I don't even think that the explanation we've already set up top, I think you're getting, you're getting innovators, you're getting original uh, artists that uh, took an idea, worked with the right producer at the right time in an era where music was so one direction in its genre. And then you have these guys come out and you say, nah, this is, there's a whole nother group well, of people that really. They set the table for Tribe and, every, and bands that weren't even part of Native Tongues, like The Roots. I don't know that there would be The Roots if there wasn't De La First. Oh, oh because 100%. The roots, the roots were backpack, you know, rappers. And and so, like, most deaf even, uh, Talib Kweli probably most deaf, wouldn't most be around deaf. if De La hadn't been around. Yeah, I think you can hear a lot of Black Star uh, in this record. You can definitely hear most Def in, in all the music, in his lyrics, and his positivity. You know, he's more, he's kind of a combination, I think, of that public enemy where he does have a message and he does, he's trying to correct the wrongs in the right. world. But there is still that underlying love that you get from artists like De La Soul and Q-Tip and Fife Dog that, I mean... Like I honestly, Kendrick Lamar, I could I can imagine him being, especially with the record uh, "To Pimp a Butterfly." I mean, it's so out there, it's right. so different. How could this? How I just hit the whole computer. Yeah. How could this not be? Yeah, it's super. Um, Brian, this was great. Anything you want to promote, please. Uh, live dates, Brian um, Merch, same same thing. <laughs> And then I have my uh, my podcast is uh, Nerd Poker, uh, which is available everywhere. But uh, we appreciate Patreon sponsors. That's what uh, keeps the show alive. And yeah, keeps, dude, uh, every- keeps Blaine Capatch creating funny. Yeah, 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 dude. Everybody, join our Patreon too. Join his, and then join ours. We need money. Help <laughs> us. Help us. Help you. Uh, Brian, this was great, man. I can't thank you enough, buddy. Right on. Nice talking to you. What I tell you, what I tell you, the one and only Brian Posehn. Follow him on Instagram at Brian Posehn. Follow him on Twitter at the Brian Posehn. Check out his website, brianposehn.com for all things Brian. And make sure you get that podcast and join his Patreon, Nerd Poker, where comedians play D&D. For listener shout out this week, I want to say a huge thank you to Fletch3. Fletch3, you're the fucking man. At F-L-E-T-C-H-3, thank you for being a part of my family. Now for new music. Who do we got this week? Ah, listener submitted. I love it when I read that. Listener submitted, Devin Anderson. It's Grand Rapids, Michigan-based funk hip-hop music collective, Avocado Squad. And you're listening to the song Fears off their brand new album, Sushi Tuesday. God, I love them. This shit rules, dude. And you can find all their links to their music on our website, the500podcast.com. Thank you, Devin, for sending us a song. Guys, send us your music, man. I want to play it. Uh... Send it to 500podcast at gmail.com. Put the album in the Next week, it's Talking Heads Week. 1984, Stop Making Sense. Do your homework. I got a brand new batch. They don't like that's facts. No slack. Pimp tight, attached from the inside. They'll fuck up any kind of night. 
You'll fuck up any kind of vibe Playing tricks with your mind I, I cannot get it away Attaching, they latching, they'll take over fraction by fraction. If you ain't about that action, they gon' make they move. And that's fine with you, then I guess it's cool. I mean, they are self-created. I made it, even though I hate it. Self-produced, induced by that goo shit. Made up fears, made your ass useless. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. 
Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Next Chapter Podcasts.